Put down your pants, put down your pencil, step away from the keyboards, and settle in for this week's episode of The Writer's Block, a Muddied Waters Media production. First and foremost, allow me to thank Grassroots Kava House for the kava that I drink on this and every episode of The Writer's Block, and allow me to thank uh, the Narcissist Cookbook for the song that I play at the beginning. They give me two tops. That's just a waste of plastic. Um, uh, for the song that I play at the beginning and the end of every episode. To uh, Oh, and also to my parents. How do I forget my parents? Uh, to my parents for giving birth to me because without them, none of this is possible. To all above, Bula Vanaka. <sighs> my guest today is an awful human being. Uh, just terrible, terrible person. Um, he is the host of the Rimzo Martinez Experience. He is the author of the uh, book, Stay Away from the Libertarians, which I have a copy of right here, uh, available, I believe, on Amazon. Uh, we'll be able to ask him that in just a second. And uh, the uh, author of the upcoming book, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Mr. Remzo Martinez. Remzo, how you doing? Matt, I am doing great, and it's uh, great to be here. And I definitely want to say that I was praying for your recovery after I found out that you had a hand injury that you obtained at the recent Marco Rubio foam party. So, <laughs> oh, that's that's good. Yeah, no, I I do have a hand injury. I I did what is commonly known as the uh, the avocado injury. Um, and, uh, if you tried to kill yourself, that's the wrong way to do it. I know, yeah, definitely not the right way to do it. If I want to completely ruin my writing career forever, uh, do what I did today and uh, make it so that that finger will no longer work. Um, yeah, I was prying something open with a sharp knife and it slipped and went right into the palm of my hand and blood started going everywhere. It was awful. Um, so... Uh, First and That's what all people that survive a suicide attempt say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please continue. First and foremost, um, it's about time that the Muddied Waters Media and the Rimzo Martinez experience just brought an end to this embittered battle we've been having, I think, for three days. What what battle do you speak of? I just remember a whole bunch of shit talk from one end and a whole lot of truth on the other, but I'm willing to accept your apology right now. No, I mean, you're the one that was on Twitter, and you know what? We didn't even care about the fact that you were calling us um, dumb. We didn't care. 
We didn't care that you called us stupid. But you called us ugly. And that's just that's just not even close to accurate. Matt, my brother, you really? have what we call in the industry a face for radio. <laughs> Stick to your zone and you'll be perfectly fine. But I made you better people as a result. I gave you so much free publicity. So really, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, so uh, Spike is saying... And what else? Spike is... Well, I've got, I've got the comments going on in my other computer here. Uh, and Spike is saying he, uh, he has forgiven Remzo for his blatant anti-Semitism and inability to see his beauty. Listen, Spike, no Jews <laughs> allowed on this chat. I made that very clear <laughs> from that beforehand. <laughs> yeah, you're worried about what we were saying beforehand coming out. This is the one comment that we Yeah, instead you make a joke about saying no Jews on the chat. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that's so much better than suck a dick, eat ass, and sell drugs. No, it's eat ass, suck a dick, and sell drugs. Yeah, my bad. That's what that's what Gandhi said. That is that you know those are the those are the true words of Gandhi and or Yoda, um, <laughs> who is essentially the same being. Um, Basically, right. So you and I met at uh, Yalcon, great while ago. Back September ish, August. I don't know. Last summer, yeah, yeah. somewhere, somewhere right around this that time. Time period. is going forward and backwards, so you know it doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> That's why I told my history teacher all again, you know, all those years ago in high school, and I didn't want to take a quiz. I'm like, listen, it doesn't matter. The Civil War could happen tomorrow. And how did how did that go? It didn't go well. I didn't think so. No. I one time told a history teacher. Well, not, it wasn't a history teacher. It was an uh, English teacher. Um, I said, uh, I showed up late to class, and she goes, you're late. And I said, nope. God created the universe right now, and everything before this moment is just a fabricated memory. Wow. Yeah. Did you just do that off the cuff? Off the cuff. Shit. What'd she do after that? She laughed and said, I can't actually prove you wrong. Respect. I know. I I couldn't believe it worked. I could Inshallah. <laughs> yeah, I could I could not uh I could not believe that that worked, but I was completely happy that it did. Um I'm happy for you, yeah. and I wasn't even there. I have used that excuse multiple times since then. It has worked once. That's it, all it needed to. It has gotten a few laughs, but it has only, I have gotten in trouble every other time. Well, you know, what are you going to do? Break You break it once. You can't keep breaking it. That's true. White people. Um, getting all upset over time, <laughs> which I do all the time. I have no response for that. Okay. You guys ruin everything. <laughs> do you want a sympathy? Oh, no. from me. No, no, I don't. Wow. I don't need it. So, um, last time you were on the show, you came on. We were talking about your book, uh, "Stay Away from the Libertarians," in which you, I was like, I really like your cover, and you told me that it was done by a fine gentleman off of Fiverr. Um, Essentially, uh, it was actually a Bulgarian woman from Ninety Nine Designs dot com. But I mean, who really cares about people from outside America? Yeah, they don't matter. Um, man, this show. I'm going to get quoted on this show so much. I already know it. Um, Did you make disparaging comments about the Jews? No, not yet. No, but I'm going to have nightmares <laughs> and, about this. And nor would I, because Spike Cohen is a wonderful individual and a true friend. God bless you, Spike. Your posts make me laugh so much during the day. Each time I almost cut my hand trying to, uh, you know, to take apart an avocado. Right. Uh, and not end my life. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to end up with gangrene lose my hand it's going to spread to my heart i'm going to die in the middle of the night and i didn't go to the i didn't go to the doctor because i wanted to make sure i was here for this interview because i did oh not, don't you put that shit on me i did not don't want to be put disrespectful that, don't, you, don't you put that evil on me ricky bobby don't you put that evil on me 
my parents are texting me being like, did you at least get a tetanus shot? I'm like, no, I had to be with Remzo. Uh, I don't want autism from a tetanus shot. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying that alone is going to get at least seven Facebook blogger moms. Actually. Actually, it's not from tetanus shots. It's from vaccines for HPV. Maybe. I don't know. But they'll, they'll let us know. They, oh, yeah, they will definitely let us know. Um, so but I don't believe that you and I actually discussed how you got to become a libertarian leaning person when you were last on the show. What was yeah, so, what, what was your journey? What was your personal journey from birth to sitting here on my show having to answer that question? I was bitten by a radioactive libertarian. Mm. That's actually the least surprising answer you could have given. It's the most plausible one, too. It makes more and more sense every day. Right. But, uh, you know, for a quick recap, I was Mitt Romney's worst volunteer, like the worst person that could have ever worked for a campaign in 2012. Uh, I needed some community service hours, and I was a little bit interested in politics, so I thought I'd go ahead and volunteer for Mitt Romney. I was a big Republican at the time. What kind of community service hours were these? Were these court-ordered, or were these... <laughs> it was in high school, because I'm 12. So <laughs> uh, I, I went ahead and thought, hey, I could do both and knock it out, but before I uh, could knock on one door, make a phone call, or send out a single letter asking for a donation... For the local Romney campaign, I ghosted them because I was paying a lot more attention to things going on. And I realized that the things that mattered to me, free markets, constitutionalism, individual liberty, were not necessarily being echoed by the Romney campaign at all. And, you know, essentially he was just a white, boring Obama. So I went ahead and I ghosted them. Uh, a few months later, Mitt Romney lost. And at that point, I was like, oh, well, maybe all those people are going to go home and cry now. Maybe I can actually get some footing somewhere. So somebody at my school started a young conservatives club. There were a ton of people that showed up at the first meeting. There were about 60 people. And I was running for president with a good friend of mine, Zed Shake. And we were basically running a very Tea Party-oriented campaign. But we ended up losing by about six votes to a guy who not only said that everything we were saying was crap, but he was also the current secretary for the school's Young Democrats chapter. Yeah. And the reason why he won was because everyone said, Remso, all your stuff is great, but obviously the country doesn't care about any of this crap. We just want to win elections. So that way, maybe we could be like the rest of the country. So I went home. I cried. I didn't talk to people for about a week. And I just went ahead and started Googling my ideas much like uh, Justin Amash did. Um, and I ended up finding all these guys like Von Mises and Hayek. And I was like, who are all these Australian dudes? And uh, <laughs> finally figured out they were Austrian. And my life has been weird ever since. Yeah, I believe that was a uh, chapter two of this book, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, I was free like, folks, free, 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 free preview. I'm a man of the people. Yeah, I was like, I feel as though I've read that. I knew that story. Um, but yeah, uh, so when you and I met at the, uh, Young Americans for Liberty conference in DC, rest in, let's be honest, let's not lie to the people. Uh, <laughs> I've been telling people I've been, I, I live at, I live in DC for 10 years and only people from actual DC call me out on it. No, I get that. Cause I grew up in DC. Struggle. No, I didn't. I grew up in Northern Virginia. Um, but people's yeah, Republic. That's right. The people's Republic of Virginia. But, um, so, uh, yeah, we met, we met at the, uh, Yalcon there. And the very first thing you said to me was, Hey man, you want a beer? And un unbeknownst true story. Yeah. True story. Offered me a beer before he knew me, which you know what? Respect. I do respect that. I'm a gentleman. I'm a Southern gentleman. That's true. Um, he may not have known that I was a recovering alcoholic, but eh, I'm not going to, but then you, in but then you informed me of that, yes. to which I replied, do you want it or not? <laughs> <laughs> also true. And I went, no, I'm good. I mean, no, I do, but I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm standing there like, I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I live most of my life. Uh, and uh, Great we, origin stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the friendship for the ages. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we... Um, 
we got it off to a great conversation. You were work, you were, you were manning the booth for gun owners of America and, uh, sure. And, uh, I, when I brought you on, I didn't know you had written a book <laughs> like before, like, but when I said, Hey, do you want to come on the show? I thought you were going to come on to talk about like gun owners of America. And then you said, yeah, do you want me to send you a copy of my book? And I went, Sure. <laughs> and then you sent me a well i wanted you to talk about guns and now you just want to make it all about yourself I, right i mean but you know i understand it as as a narcissist i get it um but now you have this new book coming out which i was able to read some of um because you know i told you last time i'm not a great reader which is weird since i write uh, but the book, How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, which the first four chapters are hilarious and need some editing because you sent me the first draft and I understand that. But they're hilarious and they're really well, like the story I really like and soon I will get past the fourth chapter. But uh, how did you uh, how did you get started on this one? Uh, th- this was a lot more of a journey than the first book was because, I mean, I, I told you this on the last time we spoke. Um, I mean, the, the book initially was not going to be a memoir. It was initially going to be, and it's not, I don't even really like it when people call it a memoir because I'm really just using my own personal stories in order to elaborate and flesh out more complicated ideas. But essentially, um, you know, the first book, the big trouble, the big challenge of that was just learning how to write a book. Right. It took me about a year and a half to write because I had been a blogger for a while. But when you're actually trying to write a full feature length book, it's a lot more difficult. This time, it was a lot more of a creative challenge because the first book is um, nonfiction. This book is actually historical fiction. That's how it has to be categorized, even though the entire book there, you know, it was a bit complicated. I equate it to either, you know, um, people that like uh Jeff Shara from uh, Gods and Generals and stuff, where you basically had to put fictitious elements in the book. As, and I say it's like that, but it's also kind of like The Greatest Showman, where most of the people are real, but a lot of the shit just never happened. Right. So I say it's in that fine line, because what you have in this book is you have two intertwining story arcs. One of them is purely fiction based in events that did happen such as the charlottesville riot and uh, other situations and a majority of the characters in there except for some public figures which if you saw their names are real um are are fictitious they're combinations they're mixtures of people that i have encountered over the years so you have that story arc which takes place from 2016 to 2018 then you have this other story arc which kind of intertwines between the other story throughout the book and it is purely nonfiction. it's based off actual historical accounts i did about six months of research for this part and it is about probably the most infamous villain of american history especially from the 20th century that we have ever seen george wallace so essentially you have uh, the main character in the modern times, Art Bell, who is, I'm sorry, Art Brown, who's a little bit based off Art Bell, the former political radio host. And um, he eventually started doing sci-fi stuff. So I took the name in honor of him. He died about a year ago. So you have Art Brown, Art Brown, who's a political consultant. And he's basically dealing with a world in which the politics that he thinks are real and the way that America should be don't end up happening. And he starts seeing a world of corruption and debauchery and lies. And uh, he starts to become complacent with that. He starts to just kind of accept it. So while that's going on and you're seeing arts, um, you know, story progress, you're also seeing it kind of intertwine with the actual career of George Wallace, which people know very little about. And initially, um, in the book, I was going to have a bunch of different politicians to show different examples, but I thought it would be better to show the entire life of an individual. When I think of your quintessential politician who had very good aspirations for people and ended up making terrible decisions in order to be politically expedient, um, George Wallace is definitely one of those folks because what people don't know about him 
is he started off as a very, you know, I'd say a very progressive Southern Democrat. He started out but as an anti-segregationist. That, um, I mean, that in 1958, when he first ran for governor in the Democratic primaries, he was endorsed by the NAACP. Right. And as a circuit judge in Alabama, he actually was in favor of, um, you know, black lawyers almost as often as he was with uh, white lawyers. And there's one story about a man named uh, J.L. Chestnut, who was a black attorney. He was representing a, a peanut farmer at one point whose land was about to be forcibly taken and given to this one giant northern business. The, you know, the northerners attorneys come in and they start referring to Mr. Chestnut as those people and that person. And, you know, why is he here and all this other stuff? And George Wallace actually loses his cool and he slams his gavel on the table. And he's like, when you are in my court, you will call Mr. Chestnut, Mr. Chestnut or the plaintiff and nothing else. Or I will go ahead and hold you in contempt of court. And J.L. Chestnut, he goes ahead and he says, you know, there were some cases where I'd go in for a lawsuit and I'd request maybe $50 for my client and George Wallace would give him $75. I mean, you know, he was a fair judge. And in one of his only few televised commercials at the time, because, you know, television commercials for uh, political campaigns are still very new, he said, listen, as a circuit judge, if I couldn't judge a white man and a black man equal in my court, I don't des- I did not deserve to be a judge. And I don't deserve to be governor. Right. These are things that we would never ever assume from the same man who's known throughout all of history, throughout the world, even as the guy that said segregation now, segregation, segregation tomorrow, tomorrow segregation, segregation forever. forever. But so, yeah. Also, a lot of people don't realize he was elected in uh, 62, I believe 62 or 60, 63. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he was he, he was elected in 1963. He was termed out and he ran his wife in his stead in 1970 something. Um, 1968. 1968. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and then she, she ran, she acted as the governor and then he came back and served as the governor after that. Um, and in his last race when in 1982, I believe, mm-hmm. um, he won with 98% of the black vote, I believe. Absolutely. I mean, he, his whole, his whole life reads like something out of a Shakespearean tragedy to a large degree, because he, there's this, there's this really sad part that um, I, I discovered as I was researching him after he got elected, this one black man from Montgomery who knew of him when he was a judge, he walked over to George Wallace and George Wallace out in public with people around him. He shook his hand. He asked him how his family was. They just had a regular conversation. And the guy looked at him. He's like, governor, like, why are you talking about all this race stuff? You don't actually believe any of the stuff. And George Wallace looks at him and he's like, listen, I want to talk about how to put more money towards schools, build better roads and bring home more jobs. But no one would listen to me unless I talked about the race stuff. And And that's both very genuine of an answer, but that's also a very dick answer. I, it's it, it it it's the Trumpian answer where Trump said, "I'm not going to ruin the world economy over one journalist." Like it's it's the exact same. Like you're going to get it was the most blatant, honest answer you will ever get from a politician. And typically, you don't get that. You get the you get the dancing around. Both of those answers are the dead on truth, and you don't get that from politicians ever um but yeah no george wallace has been a, he i've been interested in him for quite some time there's this band the drive-by truckers i don't know if you know who they are or not no okay uh they're a southern they're a southern rock country band um and they have a uh, album called uh southern rock opera and in one of them they uh the name of the song is three great men from alabama and they talk about George Wallace through most of it. The other two guys uh, is the football coach from Alabama, whose name I'm blank. Saban. Not that Roll one. Time. Not that one. The <laughs> I, one the I one. lived in Alabama. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, the one. Denny Bryant. Yeah. Denny yeah. Bryant. And then uh, I can't remember who the third person is, uh, but they talk about those three guys. And then they talk about what happened with George Wallace. 
and they talk about how you know he ran without you know uh, he ran on a non segregationalist platform initially and he lost and then he adopted it so he could try to do other things and then he said that later on in life he said he regretted having done that and when he won his final election in 1982 or 3 or whatever it was um, he uh he won with 90, 90 something percent of the black vote in Alabama, which is just absolutely incredible for somebody who, like you said, they are known for segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Like it, it made it so easy to play the racism, like to play racism with a Southern twang was because of George Wallace. Um, so he's been like I've been interested in him ever since. The next song after that is George Wallace goes to hell and uh the devil the devil and him hang out. <laughs> and it's a it's a good song. But uh highly recommend it. Um so the book uh How to Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship. I know that you've just done the first draft uh and what I've read of it's really great. Um Jason Ly- Jason Lyon the Bearded Truth, if you don't know. Uh, he uh, he wants to know when that book is coming out. That will be coming out in June 2020, just in time for the Democratic National Convention. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. That's that's good. Uh, that's good marketing right there. Uh, it, it was it was done intentionally because uh, he, he, here's the beautiful thing. And I really do think that, you know. And, and maybe I'm just being hard on myself because all authors are extremely brutal when it comes to their own self-criticism. But like my like the first book, Stay Away from the Libertarians, which I mean, I put my heart and work into and it's my first book. So it'll always be my first love. But like, that's just a fun book. And maybe it'll entertain some people. But that's all it will probably ever be. It'll just be an entertaining book. Right. This one was actually actually put me on a bit of a spiritual journey because here I am, I'm talking about, I'm condensing events that I've been inspired by, by my time as a political consultant, which I did and uh, other stuff for over about three, four years and other stories from people, which make up the fictional portion of the book that takes place now with the character Art Brown, who's a political consultant. And then, you know, you have George Wallace, who was a real person. So it you know, it really forced me to confront certain things and really ask myself certain things because as I was researching him and I was, you know, writing his story, I, I did it as somewhat of an outside observer, especially as someone that, you know, I lived in Alabama. I knew a little bit about him. Uh, I know people that worked for George Wallace's uh, 1972 presidential campaign. I've, I met them. So I'm dealing with real people, people who live. And it, it's incredibly sad because each time you think you know something about him, you really don't. Each time you think you find something which is a really good redeeming factor as a human being, he does something terrible. But then after he does something horrendous, he does something good. And you're just like, what what type of person is he? And then what you discover is he's a flawed man that had good intentions for a while, but he succumbed to the dark side when he just wanted to be successful in politics. And he just wanted to be the man in power. And he allowed that power to consume him. It resulted in some terrible things, which he was either directly or indirectly responsible for. And then what's the one thing that forces George Wallace, you know, the, the fighting little judge from Alabama to start to atone for his sins and start to refocus on his life. Once he discovers that he's not immortal and he's not invincible, he gets shot. Yeah. And you know, that's the story of George Wallace that I actually found most compelling. What happens to a man when he is physically and spiritually broken? All right. I'm going to have to read more of your book. I ain't going to lie. Um, (laughs) um, So you and I are both writers. That's actually 50% of the reason that this show got its name. Uh, You know, the other 50% being my last name. Um, Oh, my God. I know. Weird. So weird. Um, And Spike Cohen uh, commented. He said, it's not a memoir. I'm just telling stories about myself, Uh, which I think like that. I, I feel as though pretty much all of us do that. Like all writers do that. Like the, the only reason why I say it's not a memoir is because I, I feel if that if you're writing a memoir, you have to talk about an entire account of your life and you have to include a lot of things. 
I, you know, in the first book, I just talked about my life just dealing with libertarians and just how I got from, from no one to being someone who's a bit of a, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm popular in the libertarian circle, but I am a public figure within the libertarian community. Right. So, I mean, you know, you're, and you're I, not on muddied waters level yet, but I mean, you're no, I mean, you know, I got to pace myself, uh, you know, you know, you just got to pray and hope. But anyway, um, I mean, and and for, for the record, for anyone that wants to write a book strictly about politics, which include themselves, I mean, the one thing that will bug you is that you will only be ever known by people that have read your book just for that. Yep. And to a certain degree, it is a bit annoying because for anyone that knows just a little ounce more about me, you understand that that's not my entire life. I don't just want to be defined as the libertarian guy. I don't deny it, but you know, there are other things in my life, which I've done. Right. And there are other things in my life, which I'm going to do. So, so that's just an advice for writers that want to write about themselves. Pre- prepare for that. So I write, you know, I've got two books out, you know, one's called dear Jack diary of an addict, which the diary entries in this book are my own diary entries minus one. There's one that's not um, two, the last one. Yeah, so there's two there are two two in there that are not my actual diary entries. The others are. And um uh and then the other and then the second one is called Can You Keep a Secret? And it's about somebody uh who's dealing with uh sex addiction and dissociative identity disorder. That that was an excellent book, by the way. Oh, did you like that? I got the digital copy, yeah. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Um but both of those are based on true stories. They're based on my life. And uh, people are like, do you just pick stuff from your life to write about? And I'm like, yeah, kind of. And they're like, I think every author does you, that because you, I think it was Hemingway who just said, you know, write about what you know. Right. He also said, write drunk, edit sober. And uh, he also I, said, all liar, all, all authors are great liars. That's true. <laughs> all of these are very true facts and uh, great advice. Because if you're dating, a, if you're dating an author, You've made a mistake Um, because they are making it up as they go along. Prepare not to see them for extended portions of time, even though you might be in the same house as them. Right. Um, So when you're sitting down to write one of your your, uh, novels, do you do a uh, like, do you set aside a certain time of day? Do you go into like a certain room or is it just kind of like, I need to write this chapter right now and you go and you do it? Um. I, I have my own space. So like, for example, like I've, I've got, I've got furnished basement. I would typically go into my basement and I have a couch where I will just sit down and, uh, uh, you know, or lay down and I've got my actual desk where I've got, you know, a thesaurus and I've got pens because I still like, you know, I'm all, I always have a pen in my hand, for example, I've got like, here's the legal pad from how to have succeed in politics. Like it's just, legal pads upon legal pads of shit because you know sometimes you don't just want to type it out you need to just be in that you know they call it the act of writing you have to just immediately just push those words out of you right so i do that um and typically it would be i would write i try and do 500 words because i don't know why 500 but 500 words just feels like my primer like if I could get 500 words out, everything else is just going to be a lot smoother. Even if I'm not, a lot of it is good and I end up redacting a lot of it. Um, I'm, I'm still like, I'm still putting words out. So a good chunk of it's still going to be good. So I'd write early in the morning. I'd take a break during in the day and then I would do the worst thing ever. I would basically write all night until I passed out. Oh and yeah. It's, it's very unhealthy. And I, I, I know that this is something that all writers know, but no one ever says aloud. I, I do believe that if you're a person who feels compelled to write, not just someone that wants to write, but feel like writing is arduous, writing is a mental illness because you're compelled to do it. You feel guilty when you don't do it. And you only feel like you're truly ever expressing yourself in the written form. Yeah. And I, I, I do think it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an OCD factor because I feel like if I'm in the middle of writing something, I'm in the act of writing in which I'm just purely creative in that moment. If you interrupt me, it's going to be a bad day. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Cause so I can't write at home. I can't, I cannot sit in this room where I do everything else that I do at the house. Like I do everything here. 
You know what that means. And, uh, ah, uh, ah, 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 ah. yeah. Um, but I do everything else here and except for writing because these four walls, like I, I can't get creative enough when I'm sitting in here. Do, do you feel like you're distracted? Not here. It's that I am so not distracted. It's you I you need something to stimulate you. Right. Exactly. So like I, I am, I am that tool that sits at a coffee shop or whatever and types like man like like i have to do that like i like i'm a full-time writer like i i'm a copywriter i do ad copy i write articles i do do journalism like when it comes to that stuff i have to leave the house when i'm writing my book i need to be as distraction free as possible and like i want to show off something real fast like this is this is a hundred percent free product placement, but I, I hate writing on my laptop because I, I will get distracted by a YouTube video. That's only 30 seconds long and six hours. I will realize I didn't write anything because I was just watching videos on YouTube. Get it? Yep. But I actually bought this recently. It's called an, uh, our house free, write. It's basically an electronic typewriter with a very basic cherry switch keyboard and an e-ink screen. And it hooks up to Wi-Fi. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got the uh, Quirky Writer, Quirky Writer S. Uh, gives you the feel of old school typewriter. Uh, gives you the feel. There's something about that tactile experience yep. that you just need because I don't like the slim nature of the of like the like I have a MacBook Air. There's something about this that just makes me feel like a real writer. But here's the thing. Like I tell people, if you're, if you, if you're not a full-time writer, if you're not a writing enthusiast, you shouldn't buy this because essentially what this is, this is just a super downgrade laptop. I need it's, this because it's a word processor. I, that's all that, it that's is. Basically it. That's basically it. Well, I mean, it's not even a word processor. It won't, you can't scroll up and down. So you have to go up by pages or just backspace the entire section. It won't tell you if you got anything wrong, but they did that on purpose. And it's actually a, a discipline that I have taken to my writing in general, where I'll actually disable um, the uh, spell check when I'm initially writing, because what it forces you to do is mentally, it forces you to just push yourself forward and not think backwards. So that way you have, you know, I'd rather delete a bunch of stuff than ever be at a loss for words. But also I hate, like, you know, I use Grammarly, for example, right? because my editors used to hate my work before it. But, uh, you know, with Grammarly, I found that, you know, the, the AI behind Grammarly actually does change my writing. Really? It actually, it actually does change the tone of my writing. And what I hate is when I see it and I feel compelled to click on it and change it, uh, it completely throws me off. Right. No, I get so that. I, so, like, when I finish my work on the free write, for example – you know, it uploads to my G drive immediately, which is what I love about it. And I'll go in there. And when I edit, I found that I only have to edit once. There's just something about being in a hundred percent distraction free creative space right. that allows me to put out some of the best work right. I've done so recently. I have a, I, I use a program uh, called Scrivener. Um, and it's, it's on my, it's on my laptop, which is also a Mac. And then I, it also has a uh, iPad app that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. And when I use it on my iPad, which I hook the iPad up to my Quirky Writer, it turns off everything. It turns off all distractions, minus my phone. Uh, so it's like I'm not getting the notifications. I'm not getting, I'm not getting any of the notifications. No phone calls are coming through. Uh, music will play through if I ask it to, but nothing else. And, um, and it it wipes out everything else. So it's, it literally is just a scrolling single page that I'm sitting there typing on. Um, and it gets rid of all other distractions. Uh, and then I have the sound of the coffee shop or, you know, Kava bar or wherever I happen to be at that moment. That's wherever the hipsters play. Right. Exactly. You know, where, wherever the jeans are too tight for the people who are wearing them. <laughs> um, <laughs> Spike says he has a machine that simulates picking up change off the ground, which is good because Spike threw his back out picking up foil off the ground. So it's a good thing he's got that now. Um, but not having the, not having those distractions is what I need. The, the only problem with me doing it in public is the 
apparently the international sign for, hey, I really want to talk to you, is earphones in, sitting at something typing. That is the international sign for, come over and talk to me because I really want to talk to you. Which it's not. And it's like, I'll be right in the middle of something good and somebody will come over. What's that you're working on? Nothing now. Well, that, and here's the one thing I hate. Because they know what you're going to say. And then you just sound really douchey saying it like, I'm working on my book. Yeah. I'm and then they're, yeah. And then they're like. Screenplay. Yeah. I hate, I, I, I tolerate book people. I cannot stand screenplay people. I, but. I, <laughs> I, I am both. Oh, man. Yeah. Just a double whammy right there. Uh-huh. But then, then they ask, what's it about? Mm-hmm. And then you have to stab that person and hide the body. It's a, it's, it ruins the whole process of being creative. It really does. Yeah. Like people come up and like when I was um, not can you keep a secret, but the one that I just finished called fireflies, which um, that one was the hardest book for me to write. I was writing it when I was at the darkest time in my life outside of, you know, recovering from drug use. Um, I was like, just, I was depressed. I was down. I had been beaten like every which way. And I was writing this book about a guy who is trying to get off of drugs unsuccessfully. I'm just going to put that out there now because you find that out in chapter one, but like it, it, it goes through him just getting just abused and like, I am bringing like, it's all stories that happened to me. Like they are all true stories, slightly fictionalized, but just, just for the sake of better reading. I mean, write what you know, because I mean, the the problem that a lot of fiction writers have is when you're doing something which is outside of what you know, I think people can can generally tell. Right. Like everything, like it could be the most outlandish, it could be a story in space, you know, so a thousand years from now, but the problems your characters will have will be things that you can see as being real, like real problems, because the story itself never changes. Exactly. And I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, I, uh, I want this book to be a book that both Republicans, libertarians, apolitical people, Democrats can read, because ultimately, you know, it it comes down to the the biggest issue that I had to deal with. It's understanding your own ethical boundaries and whether or not you have the ability to forgive other people and yourself for things. And that's a very human story. So it could have been how to succeed in business and other forms of devil worship. Right. I mean, it could have been how to succeed in anything because ultimately the problem the characters have is how much is too much. Right. How far is too far. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Like everybody's got to have their boundary lines and it's whether or not you're willing to cross them, which exactly, which most of us, most of us, I find the people who are willing, the people who want to be that successful and don't really care about anything else are always going to be willing to cross them. Like there are certain things I won't change my writing. I won't like, and because of that, I'll probably never be a New York times number one author. And I get that, but I get to tell the stories my way. Like with, can you keep a secret? Um, with, can you keep a secret? A lot of people were put off, especially people that knew me. Uh, they were put off by the book because they thought that it was too graphic uh, that it was somewhat pornographic at points. And they were like, also, I hated picturing that face doing that, which I was like, you're welcome. That that was the point of the book, though. Right, exactly. No, like, like, I'm on your side. Like, sometimes, like, you know, my, it's not a criticism. It's not a compliment. It's just a, well, I feel as a fact about your book. The book was voyeuristic because that's what it was supposed to be. That's what the story was supposed to convey. Right. So, you know, there were parts of it where I was like, well, shit. But then I was like, yeah, this this kind of had to happen because this is the point of the book. It's supposed to be an experience. So, like, that, that's what made it unique reading it because, you know, in a lot of ways it was also kind of like uh, uh, Albert Camus' The Stranger. Right. Like, that's what it reminded me of because, you know, in that book, that's also like that. I didn't like that book because I didn't like the story, but the older I got, the more I respected the way it was written because you were supposed to feel uncomfortable the entire because book, no right. one else, no one else had written something like that. Like that guy was a sociopath. Right. 
you were supposed to feel like you were complicit. Right. And, and uh, that's the that's the one thing about your book. It felt like not only was it voyeuristic, but you were also complicit in the stuff that was going on. And yeah, I mean, it, that wasn't an easy book to write either, because that, that is that is based on a relationship that I had. Well, shit. Now it just makes everything creepier. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah it's the the uh, conversations that the main character has. I almost said that I have the conversations that the main character has with the female with his girlfriend or whatever you want to call her and her different identities. Some of those are real conversations that I had that they, and it was just like such a weird experience. And I was like, I have to put this down and she's going to be real upset if she ever reads this. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some like I originally for this book, it was just going to be like a tell all about everything I dealt with in politics. So it was going to be written somewhat in the same way as stay away from the libertarians. But three things happened. One, I didn't want to get sued. Two, I did not, you know, want to force myself to reflect and remember certain things that happened because, you know, they're, they're traumas. And third, I, I didn't want to basically have it just be a, a garbage pile just for myself. I wanted it to ultimately be a good story. So having it be a linear story that intertwines with this real person, uh, I think ultimately that was the best decision because I think readers are going to have a better experience of that. Right. Especially since when it's fiction, you know, there was stuff in there that I had to put in specifically just because I wanted it to also just be a good story. I put in love triangles. I put in death. I put in mystery. Like I put in some things that I did just because that's what you want when you want to read a good novel. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very open about, you know, what my, my two favorite writers of all time are Hunter S. Thompson and F. Scott Fitzgerald. And if you remember that uh, Hunter S. Thompson's favorite author was F. Scott Fitzgerald, it really just comes down to F. Scott's F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. What is what is the thing that the person desires? What does he see when he gets what he desires? And what is the cost? And then how do you live after you've paid it? Right. Gatsby dies. Nick Carraway. No one really cares what happens to Nick Carraway. No, not even a little bit. Because he was such a disposable aspect of it, but everything was written through his eyes. His cost was, uh, I, I think actually Nick Carraway actually deserves more blame throughout the book than people give him. Than people don't give him. I actually think that he was complicit in a lot of the crazy stuff that happened because of his own inactions and his own cowardice. Like, I actually think that the character of Nick Carraway is a cowardly character. Oh, absolutely. But he, he just he, wanted to be part of everything. Yeah. He just wanted he just wanted to be involved in the situation like in in that lifestyle and it's almost like what we were talking about with uh uh how to succeed in politics or other forms of devil worship it's he was willing to just let anything go in order to be involved in it as you, opposed, you are absolutely right yeah uh it's a, like it's exactly like what you were talking it's exactly the same sort of situation and because he didn't want because he wanted to be part of that Gatsby group, because he wanted to be involved with Daisy and Gatsby and that, that whole party scene, he just kind of sat by and was like, eh, whatever. Yeah, and one thing that I, I hope readers will kind of enjoy is that I, I went I went balls to the walls on this character. His name is Satan Nixon. Yep, got to he's him. Nick, he's Nixon and Satan. Yeah. But, uh, and you know, that's, that's what kind of puts the devil worship angle in it, but... Uh, you know, Satan Nixon is, you know, he, he's that voice in the back of your head that's not necessarily telling you to do bad things, but he's he's confronting you of your own guilt. And the way the way that you introduce that character is fantastic, by the way. That was awesome. I was like, I was reading it. And I'm like, well, I'm scrolling. You know, I'm scrolling and I'm reading it. And I'm like, oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> is that you, Satan? Satan, Nixon, Nixon, Satan, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> oh my God, Rimzo! But yeah, no, that was that was like it was a fantastic transit. Like it was a f f fantastic introduction. And thank um, you. I, I want. I knew that if I introduced Satan, I would be compared to every other introduction of Satan in any story or film that's ever been done. Right. So, like, you know, one of my favorite movie scenes of the past year was actually in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. 
where great, great if you've movie. seen the yeah we, there's a scene where the spider bites miles you know in the area of the subway right and it seems like it's about to be like that peter parker scene from the 2001 film where he's he's fainting and he feels like shit and everything and miles just goes and walks away that yeah, was kills so, it, blows it off and just walks away that was so funny of a scene because what we were expecting was like when every other person ever gets superpowers they will always be measured to that scene from spider-man right so yep. I knew it's like, wow, I introducing this character, he's going to be compared to every other introduction of Satan. I might as well make it funny. Um, I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but uh, there have been two people on Facebook, Spike Cohen and Shane Sweeney, who have been in a embittered battle as well over friend limits over who has more Facebook friends and Shane Sweeney commented, uh, speaking of which stay away from Spike Cohen. He's uncool. I, however, am awesome and you should all friend me so I can beat him in this childish friendless competition. Whichever of them buys a copy of my next book will be my favorite. There and you the go. Person that buys it last. Well, I'll still have to be nice to them because they bought the book. Because they bought the book. Sure right. They bought the book, but they won't be my favorite. Yeah, there are people who bought my book that I dislike with a passion, but I'm nice to them all oh, the time. Oh, yeah, because you just feel like, damn, market accountability. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, th- thank you. I'm glad that you liked that part. Yeah. Um, so since we're not just going to sit here and do like the writers, Oh, look how great we are thing. You should, you get, everybody should go out there and buy our books, which everybody should go out and buy our books. Uh, obviously, obviously both are available on Amazon and all of, all of them are available on Amazon. Mine is, uh, how to succeed in politics beat, but that will be in June of next year, June, 2020, June, 2020. But let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the big news of the day. Let's talk about Julian. Mr. Assange, Mr. WikiLeaks. There's been a day that's been counting down for years and it finally happened. Right. It came to our doorsteps and we didn't even notice it. <laughs> like, 100% we knew that this was eventually going to happen. There was no way that the Ecuadorian uh, government was going to let him sit there. They forever. carried him out like a stuffed pig. It they was really actually did. kind of funny because they tossed him out. Yeah, they, they were not happy with him. Like... I'm not going to say they weren't happy with him being there. I think they were more happy with the $4.2 billion that they got moments later. But not going to say those two things are related. But they're probably yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, like, they literally chuck him out the door. And he immediately gets arrested. And in Julian Assange, the Julian Assangeist way... He sits there and he gives the winks his eye, gives a thumbs up. Yeah, does the basically does the Nixon piece and that was so epic. But what's more epic is the long ass wizard beard he grew and the man bun. Right, that yeah. was some strange stuff. Yeah, the the wizard beard I didn't really understand, and the uh, the man bun. Yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna lie, he is an alleged rapist. I kind of can understand a man. Bun. It makes a little bit of sense. Right. So right now he's on his way to Sweden, Switzerland, Sweden, Sweden, sweet Sweden for the sexual assault and rape accusations. Right. So he's going to go there for the sexual assault and uh, rape accusations. Um, and if found guilty, will he still come to America? Yes, because he would have to be extra drive for the additional charges. So basically, he would be serving his charges from, you know, whatever happens with that case. But he would also have to come to the United States because we've also got charges on him. Right. So once he, he if he gets convicted, assu- assuming he gets convicted, because I have a feeling that this is not going to be a fair trial. Anyway. You, you know, here's the thing. I don't think a lot of people who say they want him to go to trial, I really don't think they want to because what they're going to have to do is, you know, th- this is actually a lot like the reason why Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, was not tried. Because what they would have ultimately had to do was Jefferson Davis, the person would not be on trial. The constitutionalism and legality of... um, of uh, of separation 
would be on trial. Right. So but they didn't want to accidentally validate that, yeah, the South was legally allowed to break off from the Union. Right. With- Secession. So ultimately, if, if Assange really does go to a public trial like this, they're going. They're not really putting him on trial for what he did or what he didn't do. They're really putting on trial whether or not it was legal for him to have shown the documents or not. That's ultimately what's going to come down to. Which is, I mean, it's going to come down to uh, the freedom of the press issue if it come it, if he can get extradited to America. Personally, and this would not surprise me. Conspiracy theories, whatever. He gets convicted of the uh, rape, sexual assault in Swe- in uh, Sweden. And while he's in jail, he gets killed. So that way they don't even have to worry about. Or they give him like a, you know, like a life sentence for that. And that basically like kind of reneges on what he would have gotten elsewhere. Right. But it's not for the same charges because ultimately they don't want to have to go deal with someone who's going to basically show them up for what they did. Right. Because essentially if we are going out and arresting somebody in England or in uh, technically in Ecuador, Ecuador, yeah, Ecuador, uh, on Ecuador property. Um, what's to stop like somebody from China or Japan doing the exact same thing to an American journalist? Like, why wouldn't they be able to do that? Like, that is why I, I and I believe the ACLU actually came out and said that today. Um, well, like, why didn't we go after anyone who killed uh, Hassan Khashoggi? Exactly, because we didn't want to mess up the global economy. Um, you know what's so weird? I I actually walked past the Saudi embassy today, and I looked at the bushes, and I had like this chill go up my spine because I was like, a human being fertilized that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it really creeps me out. When you said that, when you're like, I walked by the Saudi uh, embassy today, and I looked at the bushes, I literally, like, in my head, I pictured, like, Jeb and George. <laughs> I was like, oh, they were well, probably there. I was like, what, what were they doing there? And you could hey, see them. King, That's weird. Uh, what's face? I thought you said we was gonna party today, <laughs> George. You know they invite us here for an actual meeting. No, they said to bring sombreros, margaritas, and you know we're gonna have a quinceanera. Are you confusing the Saudi Arabians with the Mexicans, George? All the same, I love my brown brothers. Is Jeb Jeb's wife is Mexican? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> they said we we're gonna have ourselves a quinceanera today. Um, <laughs> um, so I, that's actually one of my biggest concerns. Is like, okay, what kind of precedent on a global standard is this gonna? Are we are we setting here? I I don't think it's ever changed because you know we we've never liked journalists. Like, uh, you know, there was, there was, uh, the guy that I, I forget his name. I feel terrible. I think it was like Ramon Salazar or something. He, uh, he was a Latino journalist in the 60s, 70s. He was basically like murdered by the LAPD and it was, um, crap. I forgot his name. He's, he's Dr. Gonzo and, uh, fear and loathing. Oh, right. Right. The, the Brown Buffalo. I forgot his name. I feel terrible. He was he was Hunter S. Thompson's psychic. Right. Like, you know, he was, he was, you know, bringing this up to people. He's like, listen, they could kill, they could kill lawyers. They could kill the press. Like they can go after anybody. And even in 1968 at the democratic national convention, when the riots broke out in Chicago, like Hunter Thompson, he was afraid that because there were snipers on the roof, he was afraid that with all the beatings and stuff going on, they were going to start open firing. So he went to his hotel that was off the street from where the convention was being held. And there were cops there with, you know, riot gear and batons. And they're saying, oh, we got cordon off the area. Hunter Thompson's like, no, listen, I'm staying in that room. And they're saying, you got to go. And they're trying to push him. He's like, no, I'm pressed. I have a press pass. That's my room. I'm spending like $100 a night there. And they, he luckily he had his motorcycle helmet on because he, he, he had his motorcycle there. He had his motorcycle on. He didn't get time to take it off. And one of the cops actually beat him with the baton over his head. Then he was able to quickly rush to his room. But he gets to his room and um his this is what his wife said he's like hunter was horrified because they they knew he was press they saw his press pass and they didn't care and if that's how you're willing to treat journalists that that's gonna be bad long term and and his wife his first wife uh sandy she was basically like he cried for weeks 
And he, he was fearful. He cried for weeks. Well, that's why he left the fear and the loathing in Las Vegas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, I, I, I one time wanted to do the Hunter S. Thompson breakfast, if you know what the, that is. Well, damn. Yeah. I I thought about it one day just to see what that was like. Are, are you so desperate for source material for your next book? <laughs> no, I had a crippling drug addiction, and I was just like, well, this sounds like that'd be a fun way to start the day. Um, he, he did that stuff just to operate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would have done it, done it more as a science experiment. I was to see like, if I, I, could survive. I, I will definitely say like, I've definitely like for the first book, like, you know, alcohol was definitely an influence in it, but I had just come out of neck surgery right. when I was dealing with the second book. I was dealing with neck surgery at the time. So I was on Percocet and a whole bunch of other stuff. And like it, you know, I totally understand why some writers like they, they do some crazy things in order to get inspiration. Right. No, I get it. Like going through when I wrote my first book, I was coming off of, uh, uh, cocaine and heroin. Uh, and that was when I was writing that, but I was, I had started drinking heavily. And when I came on, when I wrote my second book, um, it was when I had stopped, uh, it was when I had stopped, uh, drinking. So like I was clear headed as I could be while I was writing that book. And it was awful. And then when I went through, when I wrote my third one, that's uh, supposed to be coming out next, next sometime next year, uh, probably June of 2020, just to compete. Uh, what? <laughs> um, Running mates. <laughs> Rimzo Wright 2020. Uh, we can sell them as a bundle. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when I wrote that book, I had just gone through a breakup. I had just lost my job. Like I was just in a dark, dark place. And I was like, let's write the most depressing thing I can think of. So I did. Um, and you read my last book, so you can understand that this one's going to be worse. Um, <laughs> Time for the popcorn, folks. It's going to get interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a good one. Um, but with Ju- like going back to Julian real quick, uh, does Hillary have him killed in jail? He's definitely going to kill himself by, you know, by a gunshot to the back of the head. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking he gets suicided. Absolutely. Seth Rich, Vince Foster. Right. Definitely. That I a hundred percent. real quick on Vince Foster. Uh attorney the attorney uh no not uh Ken Starr. Ken Starr, not 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 the attorney general. Uh Ken Starr recently came out and said Hillary Clinton definitely led to uh Ken Starr's suicide. Oh, that's because that th- uh Ken Starr announced that Hillary Clinton definitely contributed to uh Vince Foster's suicide because she berated him. Right. She was like, he's just a no good country doctor and he's the reason for all of our misfortunes. Right. And I don't, I don't think it was a suicide. I am, I, I am willing to bet that that was a hundred percent murder. No one kills themselves by shooting themselves in the back of the head. No, it makes no sense. Yeah. As a person who has toyed with that idea in my past during my addiction Back phases, of the head's never been the right, never been a solution. No, it's just it's I can't stretch that far it's anymore. Awkward. And yeah. you know, Vin, I, Vince Foster was older than I am now. Like there can't do that. No. Um once you're past 25, your life goes down. <laughs> that's that's just not even close to accurate. When I hit 30, when I hit 30, my life like improved exponentially. You don't look a day over heroin. (laughs) (laughs) I've always wanted to use that somewhere. I'm not 100% sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> and that's where we're wrapping up, folks. <laughs> uh, so, um, <sighs> Jesus Christ. So, uh, yeah. Can you, uh, where can people hear the Rimzo Martinez experience? Where can they buy Stay Away from the Libertarians? Uh, where, can they, where can they find you? Where can they see all of the Rimzo? Make, make it- 
make it totally easy for you, rwmartinez.com. That's rwmartinez.com. Catch the show, catch the blogs, catch all my social media, and pick up a copy of Stay Away from the Libertarians while you can. My new book, How Succeed in Politics <laughs> and Other Forces of Devil Worship, coming out June 2020. And uh, if you love this show, which uh, I'm certain you did, uh, make sure that you tune in to us on the uh, social medias, which you can find us at Facebook.com slash Muddied Waters of Freedom. You can find us on Twitter at Muddied underscore Waters. You can find us on the Instagram at Muddied Waters of Freedom. And you can find us on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Muddied Waters Media. And you can find this in every other episode at MuddiedWatersOfFreedom.com. Make sure that you tune in tomorrow for... Uh, Jason Lyons show, Mr. America, the bearded truth, who is closing out the week for us. Then we're taking two days off and, uh, Jason Lyons comes back on Monday to open up the week for us with another episode of Mr. America, the bearded truth on Tuesday. We've got a brand new episode of, uh, you know, the show that I always do. Muddy the thing. Wa- yeah. The thing. Muddy, the wa- thing. Muddy waters of freedom. You know, the main one, uh, Muddied Waters of Freedom. And next Wednesday, I believe, I'm not 100% sure, hopefully, fingers crossed, Spikes Back is better enough to do, my fellow Americans, but we will find out. And then next Thursday, brand new episode of the Writer's Block here. Hang out for a minute while I uh, do the old closing music, and uh, we'll talk afterwards. Cool. Do it. Beautiful. To everybody else, have yourselves a great weekend. Make sure you tune in to Jason's show tomorrow. Just, you know, get to writing because it's an addiction. This fucking song. I hate the song so much, but I can't let it go. Get on with it. Fucking get on with it. I I am. I am swinging from a seven-story window. Throwing parties in a 10 by 7 cell It's a standing the legs I'll go To convince the whole damn world I don't need anybody's help Yeah, I am waving while I drown Don't bother swimming out to save me I will only drag you down I'll try to use your body as a life raft Cause if there's room enough for one There must be room enough for two I'll sail the good ship you into the sunset Spin on savory waters of my liver turns blue. Hey.